Well, good morning, saints. Good morning, sinners. Yeah, some of them are here today. I'm glad to see that we're all together some way, somehow, some uh, doing. Here's my question. How's it going? I've been asking that lately, and I, the one response I haven't heard from people is, I'm busy. I'm busy, busy, busy. It's been beautiful. Um, last week, we talked about where's God in the storm, and we recognize that storms obviously come to all of us. Uh, but also that they have an ending. And we also realize that uh, Jesus is with us, not just during the storm, but uh, all throughout all time. And we hold on to that, especially during this crazy time that we find ourselves. Before I go any further, though, let's just take a moment and allow me to pray. God, you've heard the cry of your people, even as we have sung worship today. And now for a few minutes... Get me out of the way and have your way in our homes today. Spirit of the living God, fall fresh right now where we find ourselves. Give us the encouragement to move forward, to take our next and best steps, to specifically get closer to you this morning. And we thank you now for the power to move forward in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. This week, what I want to ask you is, what is your concept of God? What does he look like to you? Because we all actually have a picture of God in our heads from one time to another. What is your picture of God? Is it Buddy Jesus? Is it Lord of Kaching, King of the Bling? Maybe we need to take another offering. Sorry, but I had to do a bad dad joke. Is it God of the iPod? Is it uh, the hero of the mighty zero? That seems to be what our culture wants to say. Or is it, is God a policeman to you? Is he a punisher? Is he vengeful? Is he merciless? Is he absent? Is he a tyrant? Is he a dictator? Is he passive? Is he absent-minded? I can go on and on and on, but the Bible says that Moses himself was afraid to look at God in Exodus chapter 3. But what does your God look like? In my opinion, when it comes to the top of, of God, especially in our culture, he doesn't get a whole lot of respect. Uh, this is a tough time for God in our culture. Our culture tries to paint a picture of God. So what's your concept of Jesus? Uh, I had a previous conversations with friends, um, actually specific, specifically a friend, about a particular passage in Scripture concerning the image of God. Um, and this question doesn't come out of the blue, and it's not a childish or thoughtless kind of question, and it wasn't cynical. But he, he said very deliberately, and he's, he was searching for the right words, and he says, Jerry, I have a question. What does God look, uh, what does God look like to us now? You know, what does God look like now for me, especially where we find ourselves? And that's, that's really important for us to think about. That's an important question, actually, for all of us to really consider. You know, what does God look like to us right now? You know, as we gather together online and in quarantine in the midst of a deadly and, and actually hurt and pain-filled world, what does God look like now for us? On Wednesday night online, I shared five things that we can do when we're dealing with stress and anxiety and worry. The first thing 
And the most important thing that we could do is simply go straight to God in prayer. That was Jesus' number one way of dealing with his, his times of stress and worry and anxiety. Luke 5.16 tells us of the constant things in, in Jesus' life drove him to a solitary place of prayer. Matthew 14, uh, the disciples, they got into the boat. What did Jesus do? He went off to the mountains to pray. Luke 6, again, he went to the mountainside to pray and to spend the night just communing with God the Father. He had to deal with so many stressors in his life while he was living on earth. He had the responsibility of taking care of the disciples and their families. He also had to deal with all the stress that came from handling ministry. You know, and how does he handle it all? How does a human being handle all this stress? And he turned to prayer as the, way, the number one way to deal with the stress uh, of living here on earth. He had to be constantly connected to his heavenly father. And when something bothered him, when the stress got too much, the Bible tells us that, again, he would withdraw from the people. He would go to the mountainsides. He would go to a solitary place and spend time with his father. Prayer was Jesus' refuge. He had a concept of who his father was. And another way that we handled our stresses, our worries, our anxiety was to turn to the scriptures, to meditate, to read God's words to us. And the Bible contains the best ways for all of us to handle our stress, our anxiety, and our worry. Uh, again, a major part of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. If you pick that up, if you read through it, it will help you deal with the ideas of stress and worry. Matthew 5 to 7 isn't the only place, though. You also look at Matthew 11, where Jesus says, come to me. All you are weary and burdened, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Learn from me, for I am gentle You'll know, uh, and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Notice how Jesus talks in that scenario. He doesn't tell us that we'll never have stress, that we'll never have worries or anxieties. He tells us that a way that we can begin to handle our problems and our situations in our everyday lives. He tells us that we can make a trade with him, which is quite interesting. And we take that yoke that the world puts on us, that our anxieties put on us. And, and it's wearisome. It's full of burdens. And, and he says, no, no, let's, let's change. Let's exchange it. And he gives us one that is easier to, to get a handle on our stress in order that to live more effectively and productively. And then we had to learn how to release, how to let things go. And on Wednesday night, I took us through a little prayer posture exercise with the, the stretching out of our hands. We do it here at Seoul all the time, right? Yeah, yeah. What are those things that you're holding on to? And just learn to let them go and allow gravity to take its course. And what we did is we, we opened our palms and we released all the things to Jesus that was bothering us. You know, whatever's causing you worry right now, whatever's causing you to be anxious, you need to let it go. You need to let it fall into the hands of Jesus. You don't have to carry that. There's, there's nothing you can do. There's nothing you can control. It's all in the hands of Jesus. A friend of mine, she's a pastor in Montreal. And she was posting on Facebook in this group chat that we're about today that, you know, everything's pre-recorded and now she's watching and she's pacing and, and uh, she's all uptight. And I had to just encourage her, say, hey, let it go. There's nothing you can do. Just let it go. Let it happen. And that's really how we have to live our lives right now too. You know, it's in the hands of Jesus. Let him deal with it. He's in control. He has everything. Release that weight into his care. 
The fourth step we did is we turned our palms up where we have to learn now how to receive. We released, but how do we receive the grace and the gifts that God offers us? And when we turn our hands upwards in, in prayer, it, it's a symbol of our desire just to receive from God. You know, or to ask for whatever you need. Maybe you need wisdom. Maybe you need direction. Maybe you need healing. Maybe it's forgiveness. Maybe it's guidance. Maybe it's, it's simply peace, love, whatever it is. Just ask and be ready to receive. Open your heart. Open your mind. Allow the Holy Spirit to come on you, to fill you in a supernatural love and peace. And that can happen right there in your own home between you and God. And James tells us that we have not because we ask not. It's time for us to ask and to receive. Paul tells us that God will take care of our needs super abundantly beyond anything that we can ask or imagine. Again, things that we have to think about. We need to let our stress, our worries, our anxieties fall from our hands into the hands of Jesus. We need to know how to let it go. And then we need to learn how to receive from the Lord uh, a spirit of peace, of calmness and assurance. And so we looked at prayer, we looked at meditation, we looked at releasing and receiving. And the final concept was learning to adapt. You know, as we pray, as we meditate, as we release, as we receive uh, from all that from Jesus, we will experience a great deal of peace. And that peace will lead us to adapt to new ways of thinking, new ways of, of looking at things in life, new ways of even living our life. And as Jesus begins to transform our lives, we have to learn to adapt to his way of, of living, his way of thinking, his way of acting. We adapt to it. We become sensitive to that. We become sensitive to the Spirit. And so our concept of God also uh, affects how you and I approach him then in prayer. So how do you pray? Do you pray? I think that's a, a very solid question of itself. Do you attempt to spend time with God. And as I said earlier, uh, you know, throughout the year, prayer to the soul is like breath to the body. You only breathe once a day. <laughs> Can you imagine that? I, I, only, I only breathe once a day. Well, sometimes that's like our prayer life, right? You know, imagine if you tried that with your body. See, our soul is the same way. And without question, Jesus wants our prayers. He wants our connections with God to be meaningful, to be heartfelt. That means that the words we use and the way that we begin and the way that we end, sometimes even the posture that we're in are all critical. And, and again, these things shouldn't be an automatic rote. They should be filled with meaning and, and uh, with conscious significance. And we don't pray to impress people. We pray to talk to God. Who are you talking to? And the words and the actions of our prayers are to be meaningful, not just routine. Jesus spoke to his disciples about prayer. He doesn't stop there. He, he went on to give them an example of how to pray. He gave them a model. He gave them a template. We know it as the Lord's Prayer. You know, Jesus said, then this is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For thine is the kingdom, the power, the glory forever and ever. Amen. 
Millions of people know this prayer by heart. People can recite this prayer in such a way that it's actually just an empty, it's really empty words without any personal meaning at all. Many who recite it actually don't even understand it. And, and I find it amazing that Jesus gives us this prayer in the context in which we find a lesson about praying with meaning. And yet the prayer he gave us has be, actually become one of the most common and frequently uh, repeated rote prayer in human history. You know, we kicked off our, our Wednesday Lent prayer meetings with this prayer. I want to go back to it today. Because for some, the Lord's prayer is a punishment instead of a prayer. Maybe you were told from your past, you were told, you know, for your penance, go say 30 Our Fathers. And I think that the original intent with a, of that kind of an assignment to somebody was to get people to meditate on the truth that's expressed in the Lord's Prayer. But I think more often than not, people now see God as angry with us and he wants to punish us. Jesus intended it to be so much more. He didn't give us a script of what we should pray. But rather he gave us an example of how we should pray. When we talk about the Lord's Prayer, there are two references to the, in the scriptures. One's found in Luke 11, the other in Matthew 6. They're very similar, but they each have their own twist. Today we're going to go back and look at the Matthew 6 context. Jesus said then, this is how you should pray. The Lord's Prayer is widely used in liturgical worships. We had an Anglican church here filming for their Sunday service today. Of course, part of their liturgy was to say the Lord's Prayer together. It's, uh, it's beautiful to see it worked out in many different ways. It's, it was used throughout all of history. It was originally intended, intended as a model for our prayers. But it gives us an outline of the priority of our prayers. And so here's the question I want to ask you this morning is, who are you talking to? When you pray, what does God look like? And I look at the Lord's Prayer and it begins with an address and it reminds us who we're talking to. It reminds us who we're talking to when we pray. Our Father in heaven. When you pray, where does your faith focus? Does it focus on God? Does it focus on yourself? Because really, when it comes down to it, it matters. It matters what kind of God we pray to. What is your image of God? Is he grandpa? Is he a divine principle? Is he king of the bling? Like The fact is, is that God is personal, almost familial. There are some liberal theologians, they reduce God to a cosmic architect. But when we take a look at Scripture, Scripture portrays God as personal, and approachable, who's loving, who's powerful, and not only good, he's great. The fact that Jesus says Father is really interesting from a theological perspective. Before one gets caught up in the modern attempt of, to make language of the Bible unisex, we have to determine that the word Father, what it meant in, in Hebrew, and in the Hebrew culture, and in the language at that time, and it's clearly emphasized in the biblical teachings that God is the creator. He's the sovereign head over all creation. He is the provider of life. He is the great benefactor and the, the covenant-making God, just to name a few. 
The fact that Jesus taught us to address God this way actually has to be taken seriously. You know, we all substitute words for God when we pray. Never mind Talladega Nights, but, you know, we would say Lord or everlasting God, God of all. We, all of us have a unique way of approaching. And so that's not a problem. But some substitutions would be a problem if they give the wrong impression of God's nature. Little baby Jesus dressed in gold. <coughs> God is our father. Jesus is clear about that. In the Old Testament, there's actually very little references to God as our Father. But when Jesus shows up on earth, that's the way he consistently refers to God. God the Father is basically this new concept that is introduced by Jesus. He calls God the Father 195 times. And not only that, he uses this word Abba, which is more intimate, and it's sort of like sitting around the kitchen table, right? It's family. We hear expressions of daddy, but there's a dearness, there's a, 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 a something close in there, close, close pro proximity. And so what Jesus is doing by saying that word Abba, he's saying, look, at it, it's intimate. It's an intimate relationship with God that only those who follow Jesus can actually really claim. We're speaking with dad. But Jesus also adds in heaven, words which emphasize not the closeness of God, but actually rather his distance. You know, he doesn't belong to this earth, which is limited and corrupt. He belongs to a holy other place. And he himself is holy other. He's transcendent. He is beyond our experience, beyond our categories, beyond our understanding. We are speaking to a God who is the omnipotent king of the universe. Who we should be respect, who we should be in awe of. And at the same time... The loving dad that we know in an intimate and personal relationship. It's a both and. And I think that that's the wonder of prayer. That anything at all, we can have a personal conversation with God who is both this, this, this far away and very intimately near at the same time. And in these few words, there's some very important observations. You'll notice that first word, our. Did you ever notice that there are two key words in our culture that are missing in the entire prayer? They are me and I. Me and I. Jesus, when he taught his disciples to pray, he taught them to pray in the plural, which is quite interesting. It's not the prayer of an individual. It's actually a corporate prayer. It's a group prayer. And, and I, I think that has to get us thinking. The only person who can uniquely pray to God as his father is really Jesus. But as Christians, we're part of the family of God. And we pray to our father. But I wonder about the fact that maybe Jesus is encouraging these folks. Actually, maybe guys, pray together. Christians, we're all encouraged to pray in groups. The power of praying with other people. Very important. Last night, even on our life group through our Zoom, what do we do? We pray together as a group, separated physically, but together through technology. 
And so this whole idea of praying together with other people should get us thinking when Jesus says, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Again, notice the repetition of the word your. Your name, your kingdom, your will. These are three exactly parallel sentences. Each one of them is a longing. It's a desire. It's a request that God be glorified. And so in, in most of our prayers, you know, we start off immediately by asking, right? We, oh God, this is what I need. But in Jesus' examples, he begins by praying to advance God's glory. It's not about us. It's not about me. It's not about I. It's about him. That word hallow also means holy. To hold in reverence. To give a very unique um, place. You know, something that is reserved. Something that is set apart. And so when we speak of God's name, what we realize is that, you know, how do we view him in that context? And, and this first request is, is a longing to see God treated as, as somebody special. To see him recognized as God. To be treated only as God deserves to be treated. Which is actually something that is lagging in our society today. And there's, let's be honest, there's a tremendous disrespect to the concept of a holy God. And I would even go venture to say in church circles. Something that we have to reshift and recalibrate our thinking. Who is God? What's your image of him? And sometimes there are those people who get so caught up on the fact that, you know, God is this intimate and personal. He's my daddy. We forget that he's, he's also the creator. He is also magnificent and overseeing. And it's so important for us to have that both and concept when we approach him in prayer. You know, when we pray, Jesus says that it's not about our names, our plans, our desires. It's about God's name. It's about God's plan. It's about God's desires. And I wonder if that's hard for us to actually wrap our heads around because we are so desperate to be in control of our lives, especially now, right? We have a hard time submitting to anything. When the government tells us, just stay away from people, we can't even do that. You know, then to add fuel to the fire, Jesus talks about your will be done. You know, what's with that? You know, some will say karma, but it's not. I don't think we as believers, we resign ourselves to fate, but praying that God's perfect purpose will be accomplished in this world as well as the next. God has a plan. We just need to see where he's working and move into it. And that's the first half of the Lord's Prayer. It all has to do with advancing God's glory. And so when we pray, we should want people here on earth to honor God's name as well. To submit to God's reign, to do God's will, just as all of heaven already does. The next three requests in the Lord's Prayer actually has to do with meeting our needs. But notice the repetition of the word our through the next few verses. Jesus continues, he says, give us today our daily bread. Some of you need to hear this, that God provides for us each day just exactly what we need for the day. God's provision for us is daily. It's not all at once. It's not a hoard mentality. Bread here is representative of all food. Even, uh, it might even suggest all of our material needs. Whatever is necessary for daily life is what's being said. 
And notice that it asks God for our bread. In other words, I'm asking God not just to meet my needs, but my sister's needs and my brother's needs. Why? Because we're all in this together. How appropriate that is for us today. The word daily uh, probably means food for the coming day. And so in Jesus' day, workers you know, were commonly paid at the end of the day. They were used to making a living one day at a time. And this is the attitude that Jesus wants us to have as well, that no, no matter how often we get paid, we trust God for the immediate future, for our daily provision. It's about my need, not my greed. And our society teaches us the value of self-sufficiency, always being prepared for the future by having more than what we need today, like toilet paper. There's nothing wrong with working hard, people was saving money, was preparing for the future. Many of us are already doing that. But Jesus warns us not to trust those things. How appropriate. We're not going uh, to be all right because we have savings or we have insurance. It's because we can ask God to give us what we need each day. What do you need? What do you need today? Ask Him. Ask Him. And so why do we need to pray this? Well, you think about it now. When we have a steady income and there's always food in the house, I don't even think we even think about this. It's a humble request when you think about it. It's actually designed to ensure an attitude of faith and reliance on God. You know, that we keep Him in mind every day. Every day. Every day. And usually when we gain abundance and so much so that we have far more than we ever need, we actually forget about depending on God for our daily livelihood. Maybe God is trying to speak to us. Maybe God's trying to get our attention even right now. How many times have changed? Like, how our times have changed? You know, a good chapter to read in conjunction with this maybe on, later on today is Deuteronomy chapter 8. It warns people not to forget the Lord when they're settled, when they're comfortable, when they're well off. And so this request is for God to provide our daily sustenance while we travel through this temporary life. The fifth request is forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And Jesus taught his disciples to pray. He makes forgiveness now the cornerstone of the relationship with God. We can presume that Jesus was teaching in Aramaic um, because it was the common language of the day. Now the word for debt in Aramaic is, is, is regularly used to mean the word sin. And that's what this verse is talking about. It's not talking about financial debts, but spiritual debts. It's talking about sins. This verse is a request for God's pardon, for God's forgiveness. You know, you might be wondering, well, hey, wait a minute, Jerry. Wait, 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 wait. You know, I already trusted in Christ. I thought all my sins were forgiven. You know, if that's true, why do I need to, to pray even daily to ask God for forgiveness again? Well, it is true that when we become believers and we, we, we put our trust in God, uh, in Jesus, God forgives uh, everything we've done and everything we will do. He erases our punishment. He re removes our obligation to pay the penalty we are declared innocent before judge. It's a beautiful theological concept, but there's also another aspect of forgiveness. 
And that is the restoration of our relationship with God. When we trusted Jesus to save us, we, we enjoy a perfect relationship with God. But as soon as we sin again, which might have happened five minutes into that new relationship, our sin becomes an obstacle between us and God. It blocks our complete fellowship with God. And he just wants us to be aware of it in a daily way to clean it up. That's why 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Our confession restores our complete fellowship with God. It isn't that God stops loving us when we sin or he's angry with us when we sin. It doesn't mean that we're going to hell. You know, it, it doesn't mean that we're all out of whack. It's that we have unfinished business that he wants us to deal with. Business between us and God. And until we become honest and fess up and admit that we've sinned and claimed his forgiveness, it's almost like a speed bump in the relationship. And look what's going on here. Being forgiven, which is actually something we all want in all of our relationships, should be accompanied by being forgiving. You can say amen or ouch or whatever or hit the person sitting next to you on the couch. Like God is interested in us learning to pray together, but also forgiving each other. Even when Jesus talks about sin, we are to pray, Father, forgive us our sin. He's not just your dad. He's our dad. He's not just your father. He's our father. And now we're to forgive those who do what? Who actually sin against us. Notice again the use of the plural. There's power in the community of forgiveness. So simply put, God forgives us as we forgive others. It's even possible to translate this phrase, God forgive our sins as we just this moment hereby forgive those who have wronged us. Think about that. But now we read a little twist. If you forgive men when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you don't forgive men their sins, your Father will not forgive you your sins. Are you ready for some strong teaching? Jesus gives a startling warning about forgiveness. And if we refuse to forgive others, God will also refuse to forgive us. And I think the question is, why? Because that almost seems unfair. But when we don't forgive others, we are denying our common ground as sinners in need of God's forgiveness. God's forgiveness of sin is not the direct result of our forgiving others, but it's based on our realizing exactly what forgiveness means. It's easy to ask God for forgiveness, but it's difficult for us to grant it to other people, is it not? So whenever we ask God to forgive us our sin, we should be asking ourselves, have I forgiven the people who have wronged me? And I think we need to stop and think about that for a moment. Because it comes right down to it, refusing to forgive somebody who's wronged you is a sin. That's what we see here. That sin then blocks our ability to enjoy a, a clean relationship with God. And we can't experience God's forgiveness as long as you won't forgive those who have wronged you. Jesus has already paid it 
He's paid for it. In a sense, we're already forgiven. And from God's side, we are clean. We are acceptable uh, to him because of Jesus. But on your side, maybe there's a sin standing between you and God. And we can't really experience that true forgiveness. We can't know it. We can't enjoy it while you remain unforgiving. And to remain unforgiving shows that we have not understood that we ourselves deeply need to be forgiven. And as long as we harbor an unforgiving spirit towards those who sin against us, we'll never really be able to experience and enjoy the forgiveness that Jesus has already purchased for us. And we see people, you and I, we all know people in our lives who are just unforgiving people. And they're bitter. They're dark. And really the only people that they're hurting are themselves. And we can't walk in fellowship with God because... On our side of the relationship, the sin is blocking that way. And God is trying to get our attention to level the communication. And so genuine repentance means that we understand the enormity of our sin against God. That makes everybody else's sin pretty small. And if we aren't forgiving other people, it shows that we don't understand our own sin. And our hearts aren't yet prepared to receive God's forgiveness. An unforgiving spirit means that we are out of touch with God. Think about that. Because God is forgiving by nature. You know, think, think of some people who have wronged you. Have you forgiven them? You know, how will God deal with you if he treats you as the way you treat others? Finally, we want God to protect us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. That word temptation in the Bible can mean either a, a trial, a test, persecution, or an enticement to sin. We know from James chapter 1, verses 13 and 14, that, that God never entices anybody to sin. So it obviously has to refer to a trial or a test. God doesn't lead us into temptations, but he, sometimes he allows us to be tempted by, tested by them. And as disciples, we need to pray to be delivered from these trying times and, and for deliverance from the evil one and, and, and his deceit. All Christians, every one of us, we all struggle with temptation. And sometimes it's so subtle that we don't even realize what's happening to us. And God has promised that he won't allow us to be tempted beyond what we can bear. In the garden prior to his arrest in Mark chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples, he says, pray so that you will not fall into temptation. In other words, what he's saying is, is temptation is bigger than what you can handle. And so Jesus even asked God to spare him from suffering on the cross, which he knew was part of God's purpose for his life and, and an inevitable part of his immediate future. Think about that. So if he can ask God for that, can't we not ask God to spare us from trials and tests? Especially from those that might be too hard for us to bear. I think we can. That's why I think it's critical that we as a church pray to an end of this crazy pandemic that we're going through. I think it's very reasonable for us to, to be praying things like that. Because if we pray that prayer, we also need to be ready for God to say no. 
Jesus asked God to spare him from suffering on the cross. But he also said, God, the bottom line is I'll do whatever you want me to do. And we can and should ask God to spare us from testing. But we need to be willing and ready to go through it anyway. In fact, that's the meaning of the second part of the verse. But deliver us from the evil one. In other words, this request is saying, God, please don't make me go through this test. But if you're wisdom and you decide that I have to be tested, then save me from the evil one. Don't let him overpower me. Rescue me from the devil who's always looking for a way to trap us and to destroy us. And this is a request to to be excused from testing and, and, and asking for deliverance if the testing is necessary. Asking God to help you recognize temptation and to give you the strength to overcome it and for us to choose God's way instead of our own way. But then the Lord's Prayer, as you may know, it often ends with these words. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Just give you some little background. If you're reading in your Bibles, you'll probably find that this phrase doesn't appear in some Bible translations. As a matter of fact, Jesus' prayer actually ends somewhat abruptly. But this phrase that we're used to, especially when we recite it, it comes from the King James uh, uh, translation. And it was probably not part of the original text. So it's quite possible, historically, that this was actually added later by people who were making copies, handwritten copies of Matthew's gospel. See, the evidence is that this benediction that we say all the time is not in the earliest or best Greek manuscripts that we have historically. Now, I'll just say this. There's nothing wrong with using it. Um, it, it actually comes from biblical benedictions and revelation. The, the early church, actually, they found in using it so many benedictions in their worship that it was appropriate for them to use it here as well. So I just I need to say this because I want you to think about it this way. You know how it's sort of uncomfortable when you feel that somebody finishes a prayer but doesn't say amen? You ever been in those circles? You're just waiting for somebody just like, can you just, can you, can you just shut the door? Just, just say amen, right? Well, apparently that wasn't a new problem because Jesus doesn't end his prayer here with the customary uh, conclusion. And it's quite possible that some scribe copying the manuscript just couldn't stand to see, you know, a prayer end without an ending. It's very quite possible, so somebody added one. Now, again, there's nothing wrong with what he wrote. It just isn't what we would consider a part of the genuine Bible. That's why your translations would have footnotes or actually have it taken out. But if you like the ending, there it is. I'm a person who likes the ending. That's all. That's the essence of the way that we ought to pray. I want to close with this. I say all that today that it does matter how we see God. It does matter on how we approach him. Now, I don't know why God does the things that he does. I don't know why God takes time for people's prayer requests to be answered. And I don't know why sometimes our prayer requests are not fully answered. You know, perhaps God wants to stretch 
stretch our faith. Perhaps we'll never know, but one thing I do know for sure is that God wants us to trust him more and more and that God wants us to believe that our current trials are just momentary. You have to believe that when you ultimately see the hope of the resurrected Jesus, things will be making sense. He has so many promises for us, and they still stand. Great is his faithfulness to us. And maybe you're watching and you're saying, Jerry, I have so many questions about God. I don't even know where to start. Hey, you got time. You're going nowhere. It's not like you're going to a buffet or anything. Text soul to the number that's on the screen. We'll contact you personally. Email us. Direct message us. We want to pray with you. We want to be able to answer your questions. I've said it before. We're not going to creepy stalk you or anything like that. We simply care about your spiritual well-being. And even in the midst of this global crisis, we are still there for you. Somebody will respond to you personally. This is the type of God we serve. He is going to show up where you are at. Because that is what he is and what he does. And so regardless of the storms in your life right now, God knows where you're at. Before you were in your mother's womb, God formed you. God wants to do something right now. Somebody has, has to make a, a major decision. We want to be able to pray with you. Maybe you feel like you're still in that storm that we all find ourselves in. Maybe you want to give up. Well, I just want to say this. Ask God. Ask God to speak to your heart. Ask God to reveal some steps. Ask somebody to come alongside of you. Because in spite of the storm we are in right now, focus on Jesus. Talk to him. You may not feel at peace, but there's maybe you have a gut feeling that this is something you need to do. Act on it. Your gut is probably telling you to step out and to trust what God has for you. He wants us to seize the moment. Now more than ever before, people. God is calling us to face our fears and to deal with the storms in our lives. And how much are we willing to risk? How badly do you want to get close to God? How much are you willing to sacrifice to live out your God-given purpose? There are so many things that God wants to do. But we have to change our perspective. We have to confront our fears. And we have to choose to let God step into our lives and begin to take control of the things that we have no control of. As we close this meeting, I'm going to ask that we say the words of the Lord's Prayer together. It will come up on your screen and I'll recite it. Just follow along audibly in your room or wherever you're watching from. But before we do, search our hearts. Is there any unforgiveness there? And take a moment just to deal with that. As we pray, I want you to really think about the meaning of each phrase. I'm going to say it slowly. Think about each phrase and make it your own prayer to God today. Don't just say it rote. 
the best you can, try to bring some personal conviction into this. Because now what has happened, even though it's written and in front of us, you're having a conversation with the real God. So let's say each word to God with meaning. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. May your kingdom come. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive ourselves and have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Just a reminder that we have growth track step one starting at 11. Check Facebook or go to the website. Jump into the Zoom conversation. It'd be great to have you. Even if you've taken it before, you know, again, where are you going anyways? Come on in and connect and be a part of it. Learn more about who we are. And we don't care if you're in France or in Russia or here in Winnipeg because we've got people joining from all over the world. Just come and be a part of our community. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for his blessing. The blessing is this. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And may the grace of Christ our Savior and the Father's boundless love with the Holy Spirit's favor rest upon you from above. So be blessed and live the church and we'll see you online this week.